You're listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. You'll hear from PropTech founders, investors, and industry veterans on how they're using tech to change the way we buy, sell, and invest in real estate. This isn't just another podcast about making money in real estate. This is about how we live. In each episode, you'll hear about the market opportunities and trends driving the industry forward. TechNest is proudly produced by Finn Ledger in partnership with HW Media. And now your host, Nate Smoyer. Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in to the TechNest podcast. Super excited for today's guest. Also a fellow podcaster, Zane Jaffer. Zane is partner at Bluefield Capital. Bluefield Capital is about a billion. That's one billion. B with B. Billion. Billion with a B. Billion in real estate portfolio investments, including land, apartments, warehouses, hotels, office, and senior care facilities. Uh, but also has founded a venture capital fund, which invests in prop tech startups. Uh, actually, one uh, that may sound familiar to some of you, Poplar Homes, formerly uh, One Rent, a previous guest on the TechNest podcast. Shout out to One Rent and the folks over there. And today we're going to talk actually with Zane a lot about automation and getting into the future. Uh, actually, Zane's written, I thought, quite a few really good pieces on the thought and the, the topic. And you can really dig into his uh, works on that. But that's what we're going to talk through. And one of them was a report by the McKinsey Global Institute. Estimated automation will eliminate 73 million jobs by 2030. And there's some nuance to that, okay? You know, there's going to be jobs to replace some that get eliminated. This is what happens. You know, that's just the way things are. So anyway, I don't want to belabor the intro. So let's just jump right to it. Hey, Zane, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm excited to have you on the show here. I think, um, well, as we just talked about, there is a ton of things that we actually could talk about, but I'm going to try and keep it a focused conversation. And to kick it off, this is totally different than what I normally do. I'm just going to jump right into the topic that you and I, uh, well, I had started on Twitter, but I totally leveraged your newsletter for engagement bait on the topic of the future of work. Uh, and I, you know, I admittedly, I put out a little bit of a bait there, right? Uh, the McKinsey Global Institute said could be 73 million jobs are lost due to automation in 2030. And so let me just start with, uh, I'll put that out there and then ask you, what is the future of the work, uh, a future of work and, and why is the office dead? <laughs> you know, Nate, when you did that, my Twitter feed went crazy and I'm getting all these notifications of people saying robots are going to take over the world and other people on the other extreme saying this is nonsense and, you know, AI isn't going to do anything and, you know, our population is growing like crazy. Look, the future of work keeps getting redefined every damn month. Right now, there's a new variant out. Next month, who knows what's going to happen? You know, Zoom was the hottest stock, you know, in the public markets and now it's not performing well as as of this moment when we're recording. So future of work is being redefined, but it's definitely not going to be like it was before. And yeah, and, I, and and of course, you're, you're totally right. It, it, it This is a challenge, right? Because a year ago, and, and I mean, shoot, two years ago, future of work was, will employers let more people go remote? That's not even a question people are asking right now. It's how many more are going to see that this is part of the future and how we do things, right? Yeah, and also the office became such a central piece of growing up as a company. 
it's a milestone when you have a physical office, you have people sharing spaces, you have the proverbial water cooler, you have expensive real estate on your expenses, basically. And you're trying to also pack in more and more people into smaller and smaller spaces. And that was sort of the reversal of the de-densification trend. Over time, what we've been seeing is more and more people packed in these environments and COVID disrupted that completely. And now we've gone to another extreme where everyone's hailing the workplace as dead. Now, I stand in a very unique position. Uh, I, I invest in prop tech startups. I see, you know, companies sharing the data with me constantly. I'm on the board of a company that does a workplace occupancy analytics. This data isn't yet public, but they're able to capture hour by hour trends of how people are spending in the office across, you know, large Fortune 500 companies. I was floored in the board meeting. What, 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 I, what I saw uh, on those slides were that, yes, the average is like maybe five, six hours a day, but when you zoom in, a lot of people are coming in just for one or two hours, very few people are coming in between two and six hours, and then some people are spending six to 12 hours in the office. So it's all over the place. It's just, wow. it's nonsense, you know? Uh, it's crazy, it's still being redefined. Um, and also geographically, places like you know Europe are reacting differently than Latin America, where it's much more strict over there versus you know the U.S. And even in the U.S., Wall Street's going to be very different to Miami or Texas or, or San Francisco, Silicon Valley. But the future of work, the future of work is changing, and um, it's not just about the office; it's about AI and automation. I do mm -hmm. think AI and automation is going to replace a large portion of what's currently being done today by you know human beings. And a part part of that conversation we were having on Twitter was, uh, you know, I, I at least initially and, you know, I admit I'm a little ignorant to really what is the future of work and what that really means. In my mind, I immediately thought, well, it's replacing lower skilled jobs, things you don't have to have skills. But as I thought about it more and more, I was like, wait a minute, it, it's coming from my job, maybe. Right. I mean, AI. Look, I've seen some of those copy AI tools. They write some pretty good copy these days. And I'm pretty sure they could build some good websites. And so as a marketer, I'm like, well, shoot, <laughs> who needs who needs me around? So are there's going to be high skilled? Is it low skilled? Or is it still really going to be kind you know, of a mixed bag? I caught up with someone I deeply, deeply respect. Okay, someone I've known for a decade, who's a very successful entrepreneur. And a few days ago, we went for a walk. And he said to me, you know, there's a one in six chance that AI is going to result in the death of our civilization. And, you know, Mankind, and that gets you paranoid when you hear things like that. On one end, our rational brain can only comprehend what we understand. And it's easy for us to assume all this the low paid jobs, it's automation, it's process, it's, it's all good. But on the other hand, people like Elon Musk, people like Jack Dorsey, some of the smartest minds in the world are worried about the power that AI has and the danger that it can cause. And we're not talking about AI like misdiagnosing you with cancer or you know getting false positives or negatives or even your AI in a self-driverless car accidentally killing someone. We're talking about AI getting to the point where it's so smart where it can be used like a nuclear weapon can be used. It can mm -hmm. result in you know, danger to society and civilization existentially to a, to a threat as mankind. And, you know, the Twitter folks love stuff like that. But there is a camp out there and there are people out there that believe this. The problem is those people have a lot of credibility. So it makes you wonder, you and I and our listeners as laymen, what are we missing out on? The folks that are on the cutting edge of technology, they're seeing where this is going. Yeah. Yeah, that's certainly going to be something to continue to follow as, as just the same as this topic, right, as, as ever defining as it goes. I want to pull something from an article that you had written uh, and uh, or it was an interview I think you did. And one of the things you had mentioned as part of the future work is smaller for longer. 
uh, talking about startups and and their path to scale. Can you walk? Can you go through what does that mean and what does that actually look like? Look, it's a great time to start a company, and you don't have to have the overhead of cost that you used to have uh, in the olden days. Today, so much can be automated. There's this uh, you know evolution of things called no-code platforms, for example, where you can quickly get a website built. You can quickly uh, you know, someone like you can post on Twitter and quickly get feedback and do market research. You can hire people internationally and abroad as well. You, you can go on Upwork and you can hire a freelancer for a couple of bucks an hour and you can just get moving on things. It is a fantastic time to create a company and the old impulse to have this HQ with a big office and spending a lot of overhead is over. Uh, it's reckless for startups to do that. I, I ran a company that, you know, in San Francisco, and uh, we had 150 engineers in San Francisco, and I swore to myself, next startup I do, I'm not gonna be hiring in San Francisco. Every time I hire someone, I have to pay crazy signing bonuses because Google or Facebook is doing that. And the perks, oh, don't go there. I had, I had great <laughs> engineers in the final stage interview with the CEO asked me, so are you guys gonna pick up our laundry for us at home? And are you gonna, just gonna take our dog for a walk? Do we get babysitters on demand? And I'm like, what? I'm here trying to build a company and these are the questions you're asking me. There's a serious mismatch here. People were getting spoiled and it's very hard to start a company and hire people locally uh, if that's what you're dealing with. So you can be smaller for longer. And I don't necessarily mean, I mean, I do mean in terms of headcount, you can get a lot more done today with a lot less people, but you can have a fraction of the cost base by having people that are in remote locations. Got it. Yeah. So you still build a big business and still be very attractive uh, if you're looking to do something that is venture backed and, and scale to a, a big business. But it's really the footprint of the company and it's the, the expenses you're you're putting out with, you know, the idea that it has to be Silicon based or it has to be, you know, or in a hot city like you know, even New York, New York City, you know, is a, is a common place. But, you know, I mean, the cost of living in New York City, you know, I have a buddy who work, lives there now working for Google. And so, you know, it's kind of funny. He's like, we're talking through it and the adjustment to that. And you're right. It's they have to pay so much because to live there is ridiculous. It's 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 pretty high cost, but you can also find some of that talent in the Midwest. Uh, and, you know, some of those Midwest startups are, are reaping the benefits of that. And this isn't just about finding talent. It's also about doing things virtually without needing to meet face to face in person. Once you do that, you can never go back. I used to fly all around the world speaking at events when I ran my last company and I get invited frequently at real estate conferences and flat out today I'm refusing. I'd rather just do things by Zoom. Why would I want to uh, go to the airport, ha go through that headache, then you know fly somewhere, land, and I've spent basically a whole day traveling to a location just to speak for an hour or just to have a face-to-face -face meeting. Even going for a walk or meeting someone for coffee is a burden on you because you know it's energy you're spending, it's time you're spending. You can get a lot more done much quickly face to face. It's broadening opportunities. Suddenly startups have access to companies and clients they didn't have access to because people are willing to do this. We're willing to do this Zoom call or whatever it is uh, rather than having to meet. So you can scale your company faster too. You don't have to get a face-to-face -face meeting uh, before it used to be who you went to school with or what zip code you grew up in or, or you know, if, if we're talking about hot tech hubs. San Francisco, for example, uh, you live here so you can be surrounded by people and you can get a meeting with someone because, you know, they happen to live in this area and Google's just down the road from me. No more, no more does that matter. Now you can get meetings with anyone 
as long as you're persistent and you get them on a Zoom call, you could be talking to anyone in the world. This is what I mean by, you know, you can be small, you can scale, and you can be smaller for longer too, you know, as you scale. It can be more efficient. This is going to be an area of hyper growth for startups. I love it. Uh, I appreciate that. Um, I'm going to... I want to kind of like take a step back, right? We totally broke the the traditional uh, intro that I do for this podcast. What's your background? Like, who? What do you do? What's your background that you've got this vision and you've got this access? You know, obviously, you you know, investing into startups, investing in real estate. You know, how did you get to the your your position now that is giving you some of these? You know, that you mentioned access to other startups and the data that they have that's really you know showing a light on what the future of work is yeah well the short story is um been an entrepreneur most of my life uh family were immigrants refugees was born in the uk stayed out of trouble by learning how to play around with computers and websites and designing things and so failure after failure startup after startup i eventually started to make money and you know i did some traditional things too i went to university I tried to get a job during the credit crunch, but no one would hire me uh, because they weren't hiring. It was the recession. And so um, I had to start a company. I just started building things. And uh, the last company was started as mobile apps were taking off and it was called Vungle and it was basically video advertising on mobile phones. I got very lucky with timing and ultimately the business, you know, launched it on a pitch deck, raised $25 million in venture funding. Uh, took it to hundreds of millions in revenue and sold it for $780 million. And after that, decided I want to diversify my net worth and I want to go into real estate. So I start buying real estate and that's when I get disillusioned. Wow, this industry is so slow. And oh my God, everything's so inefficient. Why don't we bring in tech and why don't we, you know, just take the tech mindset to real estate? And that's what I've been doing. And not only now do I buy real estate throughout the U.S., I'm also investing in real estate technologies and startups. So I also run a venture capital fund and you know, I'm a partner at a private equity fund called Bluefield Capital. And that's what we do. We buy real estate and we invest in startups in real estate. Okay. I love the approach. Let's start on the real estate side. Is there a particular industry that or asset class that you're, you're buying that you see, Hey, this is not just a good thing to buy, but it's going to be a good thing to hold and long-term. Oh man, real estate's so hot right now and we've made a hundred offers straight and so many just, just you know, it's a bubble out there, right? And so look, Blue, Bluefield has a, a you know, multi-million dollar portfolio, uh, a lot of multi-family, class B, uh, a lot of hospitality, senior care housing, industrial. We've been bidding on all of the above, but we are so sick of bidding on projects and just, we're like the 10th bid, the 10th highest bid. Right, and we just cannot get our heads around how are people paying these prices, and ultimately they're making crazy assumptions, and that's going to hurt them. So what we've started to figure out is actually doing some construction. We're buying, you know, acres of land, and we're building townhomes. Townhomes because people want larger spaces, but they don't want to spend too much. So we're finding that sweet garden style approach, where you you know you have a yard, you have a, a garage or a garage, as I say in the UK, uh, where you can put your car in. Um, and you can you know, have a family, you can be you know, not in a densely populated area, but a little bit further out. That's a trend that's going really well. And we're pre-leasing things at 100% occupancy. And 
it's a great money maker. It's different type of real estate because when you raise money from investors, sometimes you want to give them immediate cash flow from day one. With these types of projects, you can't do that. They're more complicated. You've got to get financing, you've got to get a construction, you've got to take the risk. But once it's built, cash flow comes in very well and, and we're getting really strong returns. So doing you're that. doing the build to rent now. That's, I mean, now that's-, that's Now we are, yes. And, and outside of apartments, this is a little bit of a newer trend really taking over. I mean, even home builders, I think uh, Pulte, you know, announced like a billion bucks into, hey, we're going to start building <laughs> built to rent, which is, is remarkable when you see the home builders, the biggest home builders in the United States. You know, Lennar has been backing tech companies and all sorts of projects behind build to rent now for some time. And is that going to, you think that's going to continue or is that just kind of a holdover until we can figure out how to, you know, what other options are to invest in real estate? Look, the build to rent calculus really works as follows. At some time, at some point, you can buy a stabilized building below replacement cost. Because building costs and construction costs are so high. Materials and labor is extremely expensive. And that's what makes that cycle happen. And eventually you end up with too much new supply. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about an entirely new asset class here. I'm talking about a new type of real estate that's emerging, which, you know, I'm seeing two types. The type that we're in, which is sort of townhomes, um, which I think there's a lack of, there's not enough product out there. But another thing I'm also seeing is sort of micro living, smaller and smaller spaces in, in, in heavily populated uh, urban neighborhoods. This is coming from trends like co-living and trends where people are not having families anymore. Uh, you know, people are, people, are, I'm sure people know, like, People are having babies a lot later. People aren't getting you know, married as young as they used to get married. People are focusing more on their career or their lifestyle. So they don't need as much space. And then everyone read uh, that book by Mary Kondo or whatever, you know, tidying up. Everyone now wants to be a minimalist. It's fashionable. They don't want so much space. Does this bring you joy? <laughs> exactly. And also not to mention it's damn expensive to buy a home too. So sometimes you might just want to rent. So having smaller spaces is becoming a trend. Uh, and I'm seeing that firsthand. So that's what I'm talking about. As a self-storage owner and operator, uh, I'm okay with some of this trend. Uh, <laughs> it does play well into the, uh, the storage industry, at least as far as uh, I see it. Um, okay, so let's shift over to the tech side. So you have some prop tech companies here that you're investing into. Um, is there a specific thesis that you're, you're carrying? Is it just that, hey, do these companies serve my real estate portfolio? Uh, and it's certainly, uh, what stage are you looking at when you're investing uh, uh, into these companies? It started off with, are these things we can use in our real estate portfolio? Because when you make your pitch deck about what you want your fund to look like, theoretically, it's, I want to work with every startup. I want to validate that startup. I want to have a pilot running. I want to see add value and then I'll make an investment. It doesn't work like that in real life. Okay, startups move very quickly. By the time you've got a pilot running, that startup's already off to the races and it doesn't need you anymore. And so it started with, let's have a whole team on board. Let's see where we can you know, work with the startup and let's, let's sort of use that as a, a secret edge to get in. Now it's, oh my God, okay, this deal is hot. I've got to look at it. I've got to look at the founder. Do I think this founder has what it takes? Can this be a 100x return from where I'm investing today because I run a venture capital fund? And then can I do some quick due diligence? Can I bring my team in just to ask, does this solve a problem? 
or can we bring our partners in, you know, property managers, construction firms, you know, other agencies we've worked with or real estate brokers. Can you join this meeting and can you talk to this founder? Is this something you think is good? Okay, it is. All right. Now with this very little data, I have to make a decision. Do I invest or not? That's literally what it's like now. PropTech's heating up. Deals go very, very quickly. Any deal that I, I, you know, get into tends to get oversubscribed. And when I offer it to other people, uh, you know, as, as a syndication, for example, those deals get snapped up within an hour. People are like, I'm in, I'm in, this sounds good. Like people want to be part of this big trend of technology disrupting prop tech. It's getting really hot now. Uh, it's like fintech wasn't a thing a decade ago. Now fintech is the largest area of, of venture capital and PropTech is going to be now breaking out by itself and eventually construction tech will break out by itself too. Yeah, and I, I think that's a great segue. You know, we, we were just talking about townhomes renting and building them from the ground up. And two of your portfolio companies, we got to give a shout out to because they were previous TechNest guests, uh, Robert from uh, DigiBuild and of course Chuck from OneRent uh, and you know DigiBuild. You know, revolutionizing how contracts and uh, are, are handled in the construction industry, the complex nature of all of that. And of course, OneRent, uh, a digital first property management service. But of course, they've got a whole lot of other things that they've been building out, including popular homes. And I can see the synergies of how that fits between your real estate portfolio and the investment side of that. Um, I'm curious, is you're talking about these deals that are really hot. And yeah, that is the case. And I try not to get into the path of like how much money's in prop tech and who raises the most because as we've seen over the few the last few years, how much you raise doesn't equal success. Um, but has there ever been a deal that was really hot that you wanted to get in on that you may have missed or you passed up on that you can share about? Yeah, this happens all the time, um, all the time. Right. And there's many reasons I have to pass and some of these are lousy reasons, but you don't appreciate this until you run a fund where, you know, you, you have the plan and you plan the trade and then you have to trade the plan. You can't break plan because then you, you don't have a strategy. Right. There's lots of deals I pass on because it doesn't pencil out for us. You know, the, the valuation is too high as a common one, <laughs> you know, but really it, it just is too high and, and we want a certain percentage. When we invest as venture capitalists, we want a hundred X return or potential for 100x return, so that as the companies uh, grow, especially where we come in, we come in at the seed stage, do you realize coming in at the seed stage means by the time the company IPOs or exits, we've been diluted probably 67%, right? Check that out. If I own 3% of a company at exit value, I might only own 1% because of the option pools, because of the way you know new rounds work. It's a very dangerous stage to get involved at, at the stage we're at. So can this be a 100x return? Ultimately, that comes down to what's the valuation I'm getting in at. Um, there's some later stage companies I've looked at that I have a lot of heartache I couldn't invest in, you know, and, and some of these companies have gone on to do well, but I, I can't end up only owning like, you know, putting in three, four, five hundred thousand dollars and only owning 0.5% of the company. I need to own 3% from the very beginning because then I can get 100x. So if I come in late stage, my return's only going to be maybe 10x or maybe 20x. Of course, you might land the next Airbnb, which is a thousand X plus, but ultimately we're looking for hundred X or multi-billion dollar opportunities. And that's, 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 um, procedurally why we have to pass sometimes. Yeah. Even when you're looking in prop tech right now, I mean, there's first off there, I'm sure amongst some of us nerds, uh, we can sit around and debate what is prop tech, what it means and what is and isn't. And, you know, when do you break off construction tech and really where's FinTech? But 
within PropTech, what are what are you looking for as you know for the next several years or even 10, 15 years? These are going to be the biggest opportunities. I would say the big trend that I'm interested in is that there is a lot of mass America and global population that needs affordable housing. All too often I'm seeing startups and I, I, I invest in startups like this, but there's all too often really smart engineers living in a luxury high rise building in a class A building, building technology for other class A type of tenants. And there is a big market for that, you know, on demand services in your home, for example, just invested in a, uh, you know, a startup uh, recently that does that, right? Uh, they're called Amenify, uh, where you can get, you know, a dog, someone to walk your dog, or you can get someone to come and clean your room on demand. And that's a hot trend. But what about the technology for Mass America, right? Where you have Class C workforce house, workforce housing type of buildings, where your average tenant or your average renter is, is, is quite poor. You know, the average net worth of a, a renter in America is $6,300. So think about what that means. They, they pay a security deposit, for example, that could be 20, 30% of their net worth tied up. And what opportunities do these people have to tap into that? Um, there's someone you should bring into your, onto your podcast as you seem to, you know, you have some of my portfolio companies already. We invested in a great female founder. Uh, she's a serial entrepreneur. She's had three exits, okay? Um, we invested in her recently. Her name is uh, Shannon and she um she basically has a company called roost join roost.com and we love it because it allows renters to tap into their security deposit first it's a free platform for property managers and it allows the property manager to just outsource the security deposit headache completely but tenants can now borrow 30 percent of their security deposit and they can set up a payment plan to pay it back and as they pay it back they build credit what other alternatives do tenants have? Payday loans, which are multi hundred percent APRs. Instead, you just pay a couple of bucks a month and now you've got this credit facility where you can take out the security deposit and borrow back. So things like that, I'm really interested in. That's that's very cool. And I'll, and I'll admit here, I don't like to admit that I don't know a ton about a prop tech startup because I think that uh, I, I, I do a good job of covering the, uh, the landscape here, but that was one I only came across on your site and I'm even more interested. So I think we'll have to have Shannon on the show here. Uh, I appreciate you going into detail on that. Um, it's funny that you mentioned uh, the high rise apartments piece. Uh, I won't bring up a tweet that I just put out on what I thought NT NFTs could be used for, <laughs> but it had something to do with class A and Highland luxury. And, you know, I I'm right there with you though. That that's fine. And that's cool. But there's also really some significant challenges that can we pull the smartest and the brightest in real estate and tech to, to solve for. And, you know, quite frankly, I think about, uh, you know, some of the people I grew up around in my hometown uh, where there's a significant disconnect. You know, those who don't have bank accounts, which is like something like, uh, don't quote me on this, like 14 or 18 million Americans. It's, it's a lot of, and then that doesn't even count all the people who are essentially credit invisible. You can't set up a utility. You can't get a cell phone anymore without, any sort of credit. So every single thing that they would need, they're getting billed more for percentage wise, just because they don't have credit, but it, which limits and further limits opportunity. To and they're, stuck get in a vicious, they're stuck in a vicious, vicious exactly. cycle. They don't have credit. So they have access to expensive credit, if at all, uh, in an emergency. And then they're paying high, crazy interest rates and they can never get out of that wheel. And then they're spending the whole time just compound interest can really work against you 
if you're the one yeah. paying it, right? There's two types of people. Those who understand debt and those who understand equity and building equity is the way forward. But debt, if you, if you just live on debt all the time, you're, you're stuck in this hamster wheel. Then, you know, the other yeah, problem yeah. is it's, it's not just um, great engineers building technology for uh, class A tenants and tenants, you know, want that luxury. The VCs also really get that. They can appreciate that this is something that I can relate to and I can use. But can you appreciate the problems your average renter has where they only have a $6,300 net worth and they're living paycheck to paycheck and they don't live in a good secure environment. They struggle to make ends meet. They can't you know, get food on the table and they're living on vouchers. That, that's a big portion of the population. Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing that up and sharing. Uh, this is gonna be a, a, quite a bit of an about face, but I did wanna ask you about NFTs uh, and or Web3. Um, I don't even know how to phrase the question because quite frankly, I'm still ignorant. And that's why I have really smart people like you on the show here. So I get all the answers. This is, a, this is my, my way to the top here. But first, what, what role will Web3 play in PropTech? Is there a role? And is it something that we should, should be focusing a lot of time and effort on? Or is this something that you know, is not really going to be that impactful? I'm, I'm a bit of a cynic personally. Maybe I just follow too many other vocal people on Twitter who you know, <laughs> are quite divisive about it. I think real estate is very slow at adopting technology, extremely slow. And I can get some trends like the fractionalization of real estate and crowdfunding, but ultimately these are things that the early adopters can adopt. I just don't see things going mainstream. We're dealing with the most fundamental problems in real estate today. People still run their businesses on spreadsheets. And you were talking to me about NFTs? You know, like the disconnect, right? The idea that you can dream up as an engineer or as someone who's diehard tech, there's a disconnect between how that actually fits with the market itself. And mm. so there are some foundational problems today. Can we provide, you know, safe environments for people? We can't build, we can't build fast enough. There is a, you know, a, a crazy shortage of homes and real estate people uh, especially run their businesses in a very archaic fashion. Spreadsheets and, and so construction tech and prop tech have been very slow at adopting technology, frustratingly for investors. Only now are we seeing these mega, mega funding rounds. I just don't buy it. I, uh, right now, I don't see it. And, and I've, I've, I've looked at a couple of startups in the Web3 NFT space. Um, I'd like to invest in startups that have a clear value proposition with a very strong B2B model, where you buy this software or you buy this tool and it improves your revenue. It cuts your costs. Cuts your costs. I don't, I don't see that yet happening. Um, you know, the theory is there, but I think it'll be slow in adopting. You know, we invested in a Digibuilt, right? Blockchain uh, for construction tech. Our bet there was that there is a strong underlying business here that can crush Procore, which is a $10 billion public company in the construction tech space. But if, if blockchain does take off, then Digibuilt is going to be well-placed to succeed. But without the blockchain element, Digibuilt can still be a massive company, right? A lot of the opportunities I see there's no underlying business there. It's all theoretical and there just is too much hype. And, you know, I've invested in funds that have a lot of exposure to uh, Web3 and NFT and, and that's my exposure. But I'm, I'm investing LP's money here and, and I haven't yet seen a case I really like. Yeah, not to turn this into a plug for DigiBuild, but I am going to link both uh, DigiBuild and OneRent uh, interviews into the show notes here. But the one thing I will say about DigiBuild and I appreciated about Robert and when he broke down the business and talked about it, I don't have to know anything about blockchain to actually get the value out of DigiBuild yes. and what it provided. 
And that was what was what I believed was okay. This that was an aha moment for me. It's like cool. I, I don't need to know about HTML. I don't need to know about you know your Ruby on Rails or whatever you're building your apps about. So if it's blockchain, cool, fine, dandy. But tell me why this thing exactly. works. And when he broke that down, you know, so for those who don't know, like you need to go listen to it because genuinely the construction industry is is so 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 far behind. If you think rent collection and and simple tasks like that are behind, um, you know. We got into that conversation uh, and just, you know, verifying contracts and the amount that are owed to vendors on contract to contract basis. It was like very clear. No wonder we can't build things anymore because it is it's so complicated. So I, I, I really appreciated about that the underlying business and not needing to know what blockchain is to get it. Exactly. There's a very clear business case there. And there's a, when you're investing in disruptive technologies that are unproven, even if it's NFTs or blockchain or whatever it might be, you want a founder who's sort of visionary and, and the crazy disruptor. And Rob really fits that background. You know, growing up in the construction tech or the construction ecosystem, he was a you know he was in the role himself with his dad, uh, getting hands-on experience. Someone like that is needed to really push the industry forward. He's a maverick, and those are the types of founders we invest in. When when it's something very unknown and disruptive, you need a crazy founder to make that happen. Well, we're going to jump into uh, and keep on with the theme of the future here. Uh, so this is my favorite segment of the show. I call it For the Future. It's when I get to ask each guest who comes on the show to give their best predictions based on the following four questions. Zane, are you ready to play? Let's play. All right, question number one. What does Bluefield Capital look like one year from now? Bluefield Capital, one year from now, uh, we will probably have completely deployed our venture fund. So we'll have invested in 20 core cool prop tech startups. And hopefully we will be productizing our, you know, ground up construction, townhomes for rent model. Uh, we'll be growing the team and growing our assets under management. And some of the, you know, prices we're paying now, hopefully pencil out. Uh, but our uh, assumptions are pretty solid when we buy properties, right? We don't, we don't assume crazy inflation. We don't assume crazy rent growth. We don't assume the interest rates are going to stay as low as they are. Uh, and hopefully that's going to play out. I hope there's blood on the streets. I hope like there's more opportunities. We, we haven't deployed as much capital as we'd like on the real estate side. Uh, but a year from now, I'm hoping like, you know, the steady cash flow and the portfolio keeps growing. Cool. Question number two, what companies will benefit most in a remote and digital world? Wow. Um, startups, you mean? Or, or you mean corporations? I'll let you take it for, it, it's intentionally ambiguous to see okay. how you interpret and, and take it. Yeah, I think uh, startups will completely benefit. Um, you don't have to, you know, we talked about this earlier in the segment, you don't have to hire people locally anymore. Uh, nine out of 10 of our portfolio companies in, in, in our fund now have remote workers. And any startups that are still hell bent on hire, hiring people locally are struggling to hire. So I think this is gonna be better. People are gonna have a better work-life balance. And hopefully that means as a family, your mental health will be better. You know, there's one thing when you're in the office and you have to travel around, but there's another thing when your company's scaling, but you can run your business from your living room and you can take, you can spend time with your wife or your kids. That's, that's powerful and special. So hopefully mental health improves for startup founders. You know, it's not something that we've had a discussion about much on this show, uh, but definitely the startup living and as a founder startup life uh, can be pretty stressful. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I'd love to get more into that. I think that's a pretty important topic, especially just mental health as a whole, but also specifically to the startup world. Uh, 
there's a lot that's not talked about and, and focused on in that. Uh, question number three, what's one industry trend you think will continue but you wish would go away? <laughs> industry trend, can I call it industry behavior? Sure. The behavior that's unhealthy right now is that real estate developers, investors, and funds are bidding on projects, are constantly getting um, their heart broken when they hear that, sorry, your bid wasn't high enough. FOMO starts to creep in, and then they pencil out the model and make all these crazy assumptions, like I said. You know, interest rates will remain low, and cap rates will compress, and rent growth will be high. You know, Austin rent growth was 20% last year. We think it'll be another 5 to 10% next year. It's like, whoa, careful, careful. You know, this is very bubbly. I talked to some very old, ancient people with gray hair in the real estate sector, and a lot of them are like, wow, you know, this is not healthy. This is like some of the worst bubble-like behavior they've ever seen. I hope that trend goes away, because a lot of investors are going to lose a lot of money and um, that's going to be sad to see. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting times. There's no way around that. Uh, the final of For the Future, what's one thing you believe will dramatically change or fade away in real estate as a result of technological advances? Oh, a lot of people won't like me for saying this, but there's a lot of middlemen in real estate and their commissions are going to get squeezed. I can't tell you the number of startups that come who pitch me every day. And literally so many slides are just... 6% commission will turn into 3% commission, you know, will turn into 0% commission. There's too many brokers, there's too many middlemen, there's too many fees. On every layer, from in the investment side, there's acquisition fees and management fees. Crowdfunding's probably gonna implement, uh, get away, get, you know, kill that. iBuying's gonna kill that. Then you've got agents who are taking, you know, a buyer and seller commission. That's gonna be destroyed as well through iBuying, but also through tech-enabled brokerages. Um, property management firms taking large fees. That's you know you've you've had folks like Chuck come on from one rent one of our portfolio companies or Poplar Homes. Companies like that are squeezing that. You know the Poplar Home guys, their margins are insane, and they're buying up other property management firms now. They're growing by the way since they've been on your show. They have grown like crazy. They're now buying smaller firms that operate at very low margins and bringing in tech, contactless check-in and you know, letting tenants digitize things and pay for things and use chatbots for maintenance requests or whatever. It, the, the middlemen are getting squeezed in real estate. And I think that's a good thing. It'll make things more efficient for the end user, the consumer and the tenant and the homeowner. All right. And we're last, uh, we're going to move on to the, the last three. Uh, Zane, these are questions more about you. So our listeners get to learn more about you specifically. Uh, the first one is what are you reading? Right now, uh, I'm reading Blitzscaling. I'm halfway through that. Blitzscaling by Reid Hoffman. Uh, he's one. That's of the a, that's a book for the time right now. I mean, oh, it's, it's there, there's a lot in there. Yeah, have you read it? Uh, I got about the quarter way through, and I was like, "This is scary. This doesn't this really scary. fit with how our business is going to operate." I don't know if I want to go further. It, uh, it, it, it look. Um, I feel the same way, but it's a, Reed Hoffman is trying to say there's a time and a place to scale like crazy, scale inefficiently. And I think he gives the example of like, you know, a fighter jet going 3000 miles an hour. You're going to use so much fuel and energy, but you have to. That's the only way you can gain market share. Most cases, blitz scaling is not an approach you can take, which is basically grow like crazy like Uber and Airbnb and Amazon or Google did. Um, I like the book. I'll probably finish it. I'm going to try to finish it in the next few days. But uh, 
it, it's a scary book, but I love it. it it's very much about, um, you can feel the greed, you know, you can feel the greed that seeps across the tech industry when you read that book. You're like, ooh. I'm glad I'm not the only one who uses the word scary uh, in reference. I, I thought I was weird when I was reading. I was like, this is, I don't, there's no way in the world I can do this. Nuh uh, we can't, this is not what, what, what we're all about. But uh, yeah, I think you, you summed it up right a time and a place, if it makes sense. And you need to recognize the difference. If you blindly scale, yeah. uh, you know, at all costs, that you find yourself in a, a very uh, troubling predicament. Well, do, do you know what it does to you, by the way? It, it's giving you an insight into why venture capitalists are putting so much money behind so few companies. These rounds are getting larger and larger and investors are deploying hundreds of millions of dollars. You know why? It's the blitzscaling approach. It's look, we think this is a big trend. We're gonna be king makers. We're going to find one company we like with the set of founders we like. We're going to flood them with so much money that they just destroy the market. What happens? It literally does destroy the market. There's no room for new startups. If they fail, no one's going to touch the industry again because investors lost so much. And if they win, it, they will win. That one startup will win because they can just subsidize all day long and reach crazy scale. There is, um, it makes me think of a podcast episode from Malcolm Gladwell, I believe, and he talks about a, an onion farmer. Uh, and if you dig into it, onion is the only, is one of the very few crops in America you can't buy and sell futures on. Uh, and it has to do with buying the market, dominating the market, and then actually just what you just said, destroying the market. But only one person took the gains from that. That's not necessarily good for anybody. Uh, it's a fascinating podcast. Uh, question number two here. Who are you learning from? Who am I learning from? Um, I, you know, I, I read a lot. I listen to a lot of podcasts, listen to yours as well. Um, I think, I think that's the, uh, that's the way forwards, right? Often when you get to hear these real conversations one-on-one -on -one with people, when you just have an idolized role model like an Elon Musk or whatever, you're reading the media image of what's being portrayed. You know, unless you follow him on Twitter, I mean, the guy's a nutcase, right? <laughs> but um, I, I, I've started to feel like I'm learning a lot more by listening to podcasts and the hidden gems of knowledge that aren't, you know, commoditized and just turned into media headlines. The media does that. They, they build people up and they break them down. I can appreciate that angle. Uh, the last one here, what inspires you? What inspires me? Um, this is a generic answer, but the feeling of making a difference, the feeling that you can you know, find an entrepreneur who's got a crazy big vision and backing them and seeing them make a difference. I, I was a founder before and the highs are crazy and the lows are crazy. And as a VC, it's a lot easier, you know, although you live vicariously through the people you invest in, um, seeing those founders and seeing them come with you with an idea and six months later, they're growing revenues and they're blitz scaling. I'm kidding, not blitz scaling, right? that, would, that would be scary, but you know, um, they're growing very, very quickly uh, and they're changing lives and they're changing an industry. That, that's the most inspiring thing. I, I, I get up for that and, you know, I go to bed just sometimes I'm, I'm, I'm like, so excited or so depressed, depending on, you know, how my portfolio is doing. Uh, it's, it, I really, you know, feel that connection with them. Well, I hope you experience more of the so excited moments than the depressed moments, but certainly that is, hey, that's the life you chose, uh, startups. It, it'll do that to you in the same day, several times. 
Um, before we close out the podcast, Zane, it's been a lot of fun. I really appreciate the conversation. And uh, I think we're gonna probably going to have to do a, a second one sometime <laughs> because there's so many things we, we, we just touched on or even get, get to that I think we can go further with. Um, I want to give people an opportunity. If they want to get in touch with you, they want to follow what you're working on. I know you've got your newsletter. Thank you for publishing that on a weekly basis. That's one of my favorite reads. Uh, and any other media, as well as Bluefield Capital, where should they go uh, to find out more about what hey, you're working on? Uh, PropTechVC.com. I'm, I'm building that up. Uh, Zane at PropTechVC.com is my email address. Uh, but PropTechVC.com you know, has a lot of uh, my podcast show and uh, we're going to be putting articles on there, transcribing content. I'll be actually, I'm thinking of releasing a course on, you know, PropTech and real estate, thinking of writing a book on it as well. So I might put that all on there as well. Awesome. Well, I hope you do all those things. If I can ever be a resource and help, uh, more than happy to do that. Uh, but until then, I'm going to continue using your newsletter for engagement bait on Twitter. Uh, so we'll see, we'll see you on, on the Twitter nets. Great. Thank you so much for having me. Well, thanks for listening to the Tech Nest Podcast. You can always get future episodes delivered to you directly by subscribing to the podcast in your favorite app store. You can also join the newsletter. Head over to technest.io or finledger.com slash newsletters to get all future episodes, updates, and more sent to you right in your inbox. Last but not least, we appreciate your support. Please go ahead and give us a rating and review in your app store. This helps others discover the podcast and know that it's a great worthy listen. We'll see you next week.